All right. Well, we're going to get into the Bible together a little bit. Um, you will also notice um, there in your bulletin, uh, Easter um, is like here. It is among us. Um, I'm hoping we have this weather for Easter, but um, it'll probably be a thousand degrees um, because we are coming to the end of spring here in Orlando and beginning what I like to call summer one, uh, which is right around the corner. And then we'll have summer two and summer three, but that is way better than winter one, winter two and winter three uh, that we get to miss out on. Um, too bad for all those people up north, right? <laughs> Many of you or your ancestors fled those places here. Um, me, I fled North Alabama, but it was uh, still colder there than it was here. So anyway, prefer the warm weather. But so Easter's here. Easter is among us. And um, we are getting fired up and ready for that. And you'll be getting more information about that in the weeks to come. But you see there in the bulletin, uh, in the worship guide, our times for that. 7 a.m. sunrise service at the Harbor Park. 10.45 a.m. here. Pick a service. Come join us. Worship with us. Um, same sermon, both services. It's uh, two services on Easter, and so would love to have you with us for that. And the egg hunt, of course, for the young families. Now, here's the thing. There are, it's going to be Easter in Baldwin Park and Easter in Orlando for everybody, right? Um, everybody. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. It doesn't matter whether you go to church or not. It's Easter, right? I mean, that's like a date on the calendar. It's there. Um, now, the truth is, a lot of people will even go to church on Easter. They don't, wouldn't normally go to church, but they'll go to church on Easter. But what we know is they've never really experienced uh, the power of Easter and what Easter means. At Easter, we celebrate the gospel and the fact that Christ has not only died for us, but Christ has risen from the dead. And we celebrate that every Sunday, but Easter is kind of like the day. Um, that we really, uh, it's, it's Super Bowl Sunday for the church, so to speak, where we really, um, we are celebrating uh, once and for all that glorious day where Christ was raised from the dead. And there is a big difference in knowing about Easter. There is a big difference in celebrating Easter and having experienced the power of Easter in your life, experienced the power of that story and the power of Christ in your life on a daily basis. And we want people in Ballin Park, in Orlando, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and in your home to experience the power of the gospel in Christ. So I want to encourage you to be inviting and praying about who you're going to invite in the weeks to come. There are people that if you invite them, they will come. And those people are in my life as well, and I've got to pray through that. Who are we going to invite that will come because we invite them? And there are people that will only come if you're the one that invites them. I believe that. And so think through that and pray about that because we want people to experience the power of Easter um, and what all that means this Easter season. Now, here's the thing. There is really, to kind of transition from that, really nothing, nothing worse than to know about the power of something like the gospel and not having experienced that in your life. Just in life, kind of knowing something and having something and experiencing it right, functionally and practically, um, are two different things. Like, to kind of boil that down on a basic level, it's like, it's one thing to, like, um, go by a boat. It's another thing to take it out on the water, right? And so it'd be very frustrating to go by a boat and to get back and go to work on Monday and your employer tell you that they're transferring you somewhere, like, you know, million, you know, hundreds of miles away from any water, right? That would be, like, a very frustrating thing. And so it, it's a frustrating thing just in daily life to have something, to have access to something, but never get to utilize it, to never get to experience it. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about this idea of Christian freedom, and it is possible this morning that some of us, even though we have access to that, 
even though maybe we have that in Christ, at this particular moment in our life, functionally, we're not experiencing that to its fullness like maybe we should be. But the good news for us this morning in Christ is that Christianity is not a waste. That Jesus, what Jesus purchased for you on the cross, he fully intends for you to experience to the max in this life. And so today we are continuing our Galatians series. And we've only got a couple more weeks after this, okay? So uh, as, we, as we're getting down to the nitty gritty here in Galatians. And at this point in the book, Paul is getting ready to transition from laying down what we would say like the doctrine of this idea and from addressing the false teaching uh, that was going on there in, Gal in Galatia. And he's beginning to move forward calling them and us to live out our freedom every day and what that should look like in our day lives. So today is kind of a turning point in our text is we're in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through Galatians chapter 5, verse 12. So Paul is closing down one argument and he's kind of transitioning to the next. And the theme of Galatians is freedom, freedom in Christ, and the theme verse is Galatians 5.1, okay? So let me read that for you. If I could summarize what Paul's heart and idea is in Galatians, it is Galatians 5.1. So that is in the middle of our text this morning. So I'm going to read that to you, and then we're going to talk about the bookends of, of, of all this around it. So Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That is the, the, the heart message of Galatians. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, why is it that Christians have been set free? Well, Paul tells us. Why is it that Christ has set us free from the condemnation of the law, um, from um, trying to earn our way to heaven, from guilt, from shame, because we can't keep the law perfectly, from idolatry, from being a slave to our sin? Why is it that we're free from all those things in Christ. Well, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, that sounds kind of simple. What, are you, what, are you, what I'm saying is this. He, he did that so that you would experience it daily in your life. He didn't set you free so that it would just be some doctrine on a page that the preacher talks about every now and then on a Sunday. He, he fully intends for you to experience freedom in your daily life. There's a difference and experiencing it daily and simply knowing about it or having access to it or it being true positionally. Jesus set you free in reality, okay? Positionally in Christ, you are free. Your reality, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, if you've repented of sin and put your faith in Christ, your reality is that you're free. He set you free in reality so that you will know freedom experientially. So that you would live in it on a daily and weekly basis. And the reality without the experience would be a waste. But Jesus is not wasting anything. Now remember, the issue in Galatia is that there are false teachers telling them that Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection, the gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, is not enough. That if they really want to be right with God, really want to grow in maturity, really want to experience the fullness of what it means to know God, they need to also become Jewish. To be circumcised. If they're male. If they, to keep certain laws. To, to keep dietary laws and things of that nature. And like the Galatians, we too can be tempted to begin to look to other things beside Christ to make us feel right with God, to justify us. We can rely on rules over God's grace. We can, we can even abuse our freedom that's been given to us. And Paul's going to address that in the next couple of weeks. We can have the reality of freedom but not experience it fully as we should. But Christ has so much more intended for his people. Christ wants us to live in the freedom that is ours if in fact we've been set free. 
So it's with that tone that we go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Now I'm going to first read to you verses 21 through 31. We're going to take this kind of in, in chunks. And in verses 21 through 31 is what is widely considered the most difficult part of Galatians to interpret and to, and, and to, and to understand. And that's mainly because you have to have some level of understanding of the Old Testament. And you have to understand that, that Paul here is um, using this as an illustration. And so we're going to kind of use that because this illustration closes down his big argument in one sense, but it also he is using it to move forward to Galatians 5.1 where he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He is, he is using this illustration that we're about to read to show us that yes, in fact, if you are in Christ, you are free and you need to do whatever it takes to pursue that freedom in Christ and to guard and protect that freedom in Christ, steward that freedom. So look at verse 21. Paul writes, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You who desire to come under, he's saying, and to begin to obey the law and keep the law and be justified by the law, have you listened to what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. That's a key phrase to understand, Okay. He said, okay, you can interpret this allegorically. I've got an illustration for you. I'm going to take this and I'm going to apply this to something today. These women are two covenants, he says. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written... And he quotes from Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. <laughs> Now, if you're confused, raise your hand. All right? Everybody look at the liars in the room. I'm just kidding. Like, I, can, I get confused when I read it, right? It's like, what does this mean? What the, oh, I'm sorry. What does this mean? <laughs> that was weird. Yeah. There's a microphone on my face. Um, what does this mean, right? You're, you're like, what in the world? What is he talking about here? I hadn't, what, is this, what is that story? And you might even be like, I'm familiar with the story. What does this mean to me now? So let's break it down. Paul is using this Old Testament story to illustrate the point that believers in Christ are free from condemnation of the law, works, righteousness, guilt, and shame, the things we mentioned, and they need to live like it. Now, why did he choose this story? That's the question. Well, some commentators believe that this was a story that the false teachers were using in Galatia to proof text their false doctrine. They would say, look, Ishmael was cast out. And Isaac was the son of the promise, the one that the promise was going to be fulfilled through. And Ishmael is the Gentiles, right? They would just jump there, right? Ishmael is the Gentiles. The Jews are of Isaac. So if you don't want to be cast out, you need, to not, only, you need not only Jesus, but you've got to become Jewish. Look, you need, you need to become Jewish. You need to become of Isaac. And your customs and the things you're doing, living a Jewish lifestyle, getting circumcised, all those things we mentioned. And Paul uses the story to actually illustrate the opposite. He's turning it. He's taking something that they're using. He's saying, you really don't understand it at all. So if you, want to, if you want to make that story and apply it today, let's take this story and apply it today. Now, here's the summary of the story to kind of help you understand what he's driving home here, what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, 
God chose Abraham as the man that through him, the people of God were going to come, the Israelites, the Jews, right? They were going to, he was going to make a great nation, and this was going to, he started with a person, and that was Abraham. So he goes to Abraham, and he makes him a promise that one day his children are going to outnumber, you know, the sands uh, on the seashore, the stars in the sky, that he's going to be the father of many nations. And that's the promise that God made him, that the beginning of the Jewish people would start with him. And that it would be through his seed, through one of his ancestors, that the ultimate one would come, the ultimate offspring would come, the Lord Jesus, who would be the Redeemer. And that's the beginning of the Jewish people. This is a dear story to them. This is rooted right there in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, right there at the beginning of the Bible. And God made this promise to Abraham, yet years passed and there was no child. Forget many nations, there wasn't a single kid. And he grew older. And his wife, Sarah, or Sarah, she grew older as well. And they grew frustrated. And finally, Sarah proposed that Abraham should take her servant, Hagar, and conceive a child with her. Take her as your wife, right? And conceive a child with her. Since I can't give you children, maybe she can give you children. And they basically were deciding this. Since we're not seeing this promise fulfilled that God has made to us, we will take matters into our hands. And they, him, they had a child, and this child's name is Ishmael. Then God tells them that they're about to have a son in a year. So after Ishmael's born, some time passes, God, Abraham encounters God again, and this time God says, in about a year, you're going to have the son that I promised. He's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I thought, you know, can't Ishmael just be the one? Like, we've, we figured this thing out on our own, God. Uh, we've got this handled. And so you were kind of, you know, a little slow in making this happen, so we kind of got the process started for you. So how about just fulfilling the promise through Ishmael, let it be his descendants? <laughs> no, 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 no. Sarah's going to have a child. And Sarah at this point is like about 100, okay? So Sarah's like, what? Sarah, Abraham laughs like, in, How, what in the world? Kind of like, not in disbelief as much as just in like be- amazement. Like, what in the world? Sarah laughs in unbelief, right? And we can understand that, right? She's just like, <laughs> whatever, you know? Um, and then when she's confronted about that, she's like, I didn't laugh, I didn't laugh, right? So Sarah miraculously conceives. And about a year later, she has a son, and his name is Isaac. You have two women. One a slave, that's Hagar. One free, that's Sarah. You have two sons. One who is free, Isaac. One born into slavery, that's Ishmael. His mother's a servant, slave. Isaac represents God's promise, and therefore God's way, God's work, God's grace. Ishmael represents the flesh, doing it our own way. Therefore, man's way, man's work. Paul says Hagar represents Mount Sinai, present Jerusalem, life under the law. But believers are tied to the Jerusalem above, heaven. Believers in Jesus are the true Israel, he is saying, the chosen people of God. We are, in fact, the free people of God. We are, in fact, the sons of Isaac. And in verse 27, when he quotes from Isaiah 54.1, that was a prophecy about the Babylonian exile and how it projected hope for God's people. It looked back and said, look how God chose to bring the nation through, through Sarah's offspring, not Hagar's. Look at what God did back then, Israel. He can do it again. Even though you're low in number now, even though this has been hard, the barren one, she produced the nation in the same way. Though, the, though wheat, God was going to bring fruit from Israel in that day. And because God miraculously brings something beautiful where there is nothing, that's just what God's in the habit of doing. He was going to do it then. And now Paul is saying to Galatia, miraculously, through the new birth, though these false teachers tell you that you must become Jewish to be right with God, 
God has miraculously brought you Gentiles into his family. Don't be led astray by the Ishmaels, you Isaacs. You're not an Ishmael that needs to be made an Isaac. They are the Ishmaels persecuting the Isaacs. God's at work in your life, he's saying. So what do we learn from this story about embracing daily our freedom and experiencing? Number one, we learn that Christian freedom is God's miraculous work, not man's. That's the big idea of the whole story. That Christian freedom is rooted in what God has done, not what we have done. God's miraculous work, not man. And that is the heart, really, of the book of Galatians that we've talked about so much. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. He was born because Abraham and Sarah did not trust God and took matters into their own hands. He came about due to the lack of living by faith. He came about by them trying to play the role of God in their lives and fulfill God's promises by them trying to help God. He represents the flesh and therefore slavery as he was also born into slavery. Isaac came about miraculously. He came about simply because God said so. You say, why was there a, God said so? They shouldn't have been an Isaac. They're, they're past the years where you're supposed to be procreating, right? I mean, you're supposed to be, like if you're, at that point you've got like great, great grandkids, you're not thinking about having kids and settling down. That's not what you're doing. It came about miraculously. He came about simply because God promised that he would come. And he represents a miraculous work of God. He represents the promise. And therefore, he represents freedom. No one experiences spiritual freedom apart from the miraculous work of God. If you're a Christian this morning, it's a miracle. That's one of the messages of Galatians. If you are a Christian this morning, it is a miracle of God that you're a Christian. It's not because of what you did, but what God did for you in Christ. God sent Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died in your place. Jesus rose from the dead. God was satisfied with what Jesus had done. Your faith in Christ is because God sought you out. The Bible even says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that even even faith is a gift from God. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, if you understood the gospel and believed it, it's because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to understand the gospel. It's because the Holy Spirit quickened your heart and made your dead heart live, spiritually speaking. Actually gave you a new heart. If you're here this morning and you hate sin and love Jesus, it's a miracle of God. And listen, the only way anyone gets set free from trying to be good enough, the only way anyone gets set free from the guilt and shame and condemnation of the fact that we're not good enough, the only way anyone gets set free from slavery to idols and sin and lawlessness is a miracle of God. When God moves on your heart and God takes and He draws you to Christ and you turn from your sin and when you put your faith in Christ and all that He did for you is applied to your account and you are made new in Christ and you are set free from all of that. No part of our salvation is about taking matters into our own hands. Not the fact that we were saved whenever that was or not the fact that we're being made more like Christ as we grow spiritually. It, it, it's not about, yes, we pursue Christ, but He's actually given us His Spirit and infused us with His Spirit and given us a new heart so that we will pursue the things of God. Listen, you hear people say things like, God helps those who can't help themselves. Or God helps those, yeah, who, God helps those who help themselves. That's the old quote, right? Some people actually think that's in the Bible. God helps those who can't help themselves. In fact, if you think you can help yourself, God's not offering, that, that's not going to, God's not going to help. <laughs> you have, the first step in getting God's help is realizing you can't do it yourself. He doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves. And I'm glad to be one of those who can't help myself this morning. That's how you experience grace. 
It's a miracle. God's work. It's glorious. So what do we need to do? We are called to rest in God's miraculous work. Continually. Abraham messed up here. Rather than resting, he got restless and began to take matters into his own hands. We work while resting. We do while believing. And as we have said throughout this book, through faith in Christ, everything changes. We do the things we do. We pursue the things of God because we want to, not from a lack of faith, but because we have faith. We cannot experience the freedom for which Christ has set us free if, like Abraham, we try and take matters into our own hands and justify ourselves. I can live condemnation-free this morning because of what Jesus did for me. You can live condemnation-free this morning because of what Jesus did for you. The moment we try and take matters into our hands, we'll probably start feeling condemned. That way is broken. That's... My reality is that I'm set free in Christ. If I want to experience that, I've got to continually rest in God's work in Christ. And my reality is not that I'm condemned. But if I retreat from resting in Christ and start looking to the things of this world or my own behaviors to justify me, I may actually experience the feeling of condemnation. We have to daily rest in God's work. And remember daily the beauty of our salvation is that we had nothing to offer God. Nothing. Here's the second thing we learn from that story. Christian freedom brings security amidst conflict. Christian freedom brings security amidst conflict. Verse 29, he says, Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. He said, just as at that time. In other words, he's saying what's happening now is akin to what happened then. So also the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman have two things there, this idea of inheriting and this idea of persecution. There's a line being drawn. There are two types of people. There are Isaacs and there are Ishmaels. The Ishmaels do not inherit, he says. They don't get eternal life. They don't, get, they don't have a relationship with God. They, do not, they don't get heaven. They don't get the new heaven and the new earth. They don't get to experience eternal life and abundant life in this life. They don't get the promise. They don't, they don't get those things unless they become Isaacs. The Isaacs get it all. But if you're in Christ, if you're an Isaac, there's a tremendous security there because the inheritance is that ours. The Bible talks, the Bible is rich with this idea of an inheritance, an inheritance, an inheritance that is laid up for us in heaven, one that we possess now that we will fully realize later. For the Ishmaels, there's no such security. There's slavery and there's condemnation. In the Old Testament story, Ishmael mocked Isaac. There's actually not a lot of information about that. There's like one verse where we know Ishmael laughed at him in some way. Apparently, he was mocking him in some fashion. He might have been jealous, we would say, of the fact that Isaac was, in fact, the free son. That even though he was the oldest son, Isaac was going to be the son that received the promise. Isaac was the son of the blessing. And Paul is saying, just as at that time it's happening again, Ishmael's, Ishmael's are persecuting Isaac's. The ones with the inheritance are being mocked and persecuted. Many times, those that persecute and ridicule the church are not the irreligious, but they're religious. Uh, Persecution is the reality. The New Testament's riddled with telling us that if you're in Christ, that you'll be persecuted. All those who desire to look godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says, will be persecuted. That's just a reality, right? But many times, we, we tend to think of persecution as only coming from those who are irreligious and opposed to religion in all its forms. But you can learn it from the Bible. That many times persecution comes from those who are religious. Half-brothers. 
John Stott said it this way, the persecution of the church is not always by the world who are strangers unrelated to us, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. It's always been so. The Lord Jesus was bitterly opposed, rejected, mocked, and condemned by his own nation. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. That's the sad truth. And you can go back, whether it's back, go back to the Reformation and see what was happening there. You can, all the way throughout church history, you see instances where religious people rise up and they persecute those who are trusting in Christ alone, or grace alone, through faith alone. And they persecute that. And why is that? Man, those that are enslaved to their morality, those that are trying to earn their way, those that think you've got to be good enough, man, they look on those that don't believe that and there is something in Because their heart is unconverted, it's easy for them to hate those who are walking in freedom. But believer, we are free in Christ. And that means we have an inheritance that we didn't work for, that we didn't earn, but that has been given to us in Christ. We have a hope laid up in heaven. But in this world, we will have trouble. So what do we do? We have to expect and endure conflict. We have to expect and endure conflict. And not just from those outside the church, sometimes from those inside the church. That's why churches split. It's why churches, man, they, they fight and they bicker. It's not always because of this, but sometimes it's because there are people inside the church who are more like Ishmael than Isaac. And their hearts aren't set on the gospel. And their hearts aren't set on reaching people. It's on rules and regulations that many times don't have anything to do with the Scriptures. And they persecute those who pursue life in the Gospel. We've got to expect and endure conflict with our hearts set on heaven, on our inheritance. When our kids have to go through something difficult, sometimes we will tell, promise them something good that's going to be so the other day, Cannon had to give blood for something, and so he was there to, to give blood, and we knew that was going to be a weird thing for a five-year-old, and that was the first time he had to do that. And we were, So we were like, well, how do we, you know, how do we make sure he doesn't just, you know, to be honest, embarrass us, uh, number one. <laughs> and number two, um, to rip the place apart. And, you know, what, what, you know, you know rip his arm up. You know, what, 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 how, do, how do we do this? And so I promised him, I said, listen, at the end of this, you're going to get a prize of some type. I didn't commit to what going to be, but you're going to get a prize, right? And we'll go get, you know, go get a chocolate milkshake. So mom took him on this, on, on this little journey, and they did all that, and, and, you know, we weren't bribing him. We've done that too, um, <laughs> but this wasn't a bribe. This was a promise, okay? It, it wasn't based off his behavior. It was, just, it was just very simple. No matter what this goes like, no matter how you behave, no matter what, no, no matter, this is going to happen at the end of it. What were we trying to do? We, did, we wanted to shift his focus, right? We wanted him to have something to look forward to and not to just be thinking about a needle going in his arm. Which, strangely enough, he, in a weird way, I think, enjoyed it. Uh, not the pain, but he thought it was the coolest thing in the world that blood was going out of his arm. So, because he's a five-year-old boy. But anyway, <laughs> but we do those sort of things with kids. Now, listen. That's, God has done so much better than that. He, he's told us up front, listen, this life's going to be hard. In fact, you may be persecuted. In fact, you may be persecuted by people that claim to be your brother and sister, as the Galatians were, as Paul was. But I'm with you in the midst of this. I'm empowering you in the midst of this. I'm strengthening you in the midst of this. And I promise you, there will come an end to this. And what awaits at the other end is more glorious than anything you can ever imagine. That's what God says to us. 
Colossians 3, 2 through 4. Paul writes, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's a discipline that Christians have to pursue. Setting our minds on things above. That's how we are, the Holy Spirit strengthens us to expect, but also endure any conflict, persecution, trials we endure as we pursue Christ and await our final destiny. Now here's the third thing. The third, the third and fourth things come from the next part of the text. So let's go back to 5.1, okay? Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. <laughs> Number three, Christian freedom requires firm stewardship. If we're going to experience our freedom daily, if we're going to live out the fullness of it, we've got to steward it. He says, Christ has set you free, stand firm. This is what commentators call the indicative of the gospel followed by the imperative, Right? He's saying, and it's all through the New Testament, it's like that. When God says, do this, it's in light of what Christ has done. Christ has set you free, therefore you stand firm. We, we work from a position of rest. We steward from a position of certainty. As Timothy George writes, we are to, quote, become what we are. That's what Paul is saying. You are free in Christ. Live like it. Stand firm in it. The indicative of their Christ one's Freedom secures the imperative of their spirit-led obedience and victory, Timothy George writes. Standing firm is impossible without the reality of what Christ has done. You can't steward what you don't possess, right? I mean, you, you just can't, you can't steward what you don't possess. If, if I went downstairs this morning and interrupted the, the worship service downstairs for the children, and I said, listen guys, I want to take 15 minutes of your time, and I want to talk to you about managing your retirement accounts. <laughs> First of all, they'd never let me volunteer in the children's ministry again, right? They'd be like, pastor's banished, right? So, can't, can't, but they'd be like, huh, what, right? I don't think any of our children down there have retirement accounts this morning. They might have some money that their parents are putting away from them, but they're not thinking in those terms, right? You can't, they can't make stewardship decisions about things they, they don't have. And in the same way, listen, you can't steward what you don't have. We have to first possess freedom in Christ to steward it. But once we possess it, you must steward what you do have. We have to. Or we will not experience the fullness of what is ours. Notice Paul warns them of the threat to their freedom. Look at verse 2. Galatians 5. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Stewarding means we have to take threats to our freedom seriously. That's what Paul's asking them to do. They can have circumcision or they can have Christ, but they can't have both. You can't trust more than one thing to get you to heaven. You can't trust more than one thing to judge. Because the idea of trust and the idea of faith, of faith is, is holistic. It's, it's all of me, all of me into that. They couldn't trust both. They couldn't be saved two ways. They could be slaves or they could be free, but they couldn't be kind of a slave and kind of free. Paul makes a strong point that to add Jesus, excuse me, to, to add to Jesus is to subtract Jesus from the equation. Jesus plus anything is no longer Jesus. 
Salvation is never Jesus plus fill in the blank. You can't have it that way. And Paul says to them, he says, if you accept circumcision as part of your salvation, did you know you got to keep the whole law? Good luck. You can't just pick and choose. You've got to embrace it all. You're no longer pursuing a Savior. You're the, you no longer have a Savior. You're the Savior, is what he's saying. You're being your own Savior. So good luck in that. You better be perfect at it. He says, in fact, you've fallen away from grace if you go that route. What's he saying? He's not saying that they've... Some people interpret that as, oh, he must mean that they've lost their salvation. No. He was saying you will have proven that you have never really experienced the transforming grace of God in your life and you have fallen away from the grace of God that was presented to you in the gospel. He's not saying that you've lost something. He's saying that you'll have proven that you've never really attained to something. You never really knew the reality of freedom in Christ. That's why you're not experiencing it. So he's saying you need to, in light of the threat of those who would lead you astray, in light of the threat of the evil forces that would lure you out of your freedom, we have to choose freedom every day. Choose freedom every day. We have to choose daily to rest in God's work in Christ. And stewarding is always done in the light of our certain future. Look with me at verse 5. Verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, Galatians 5 and 6, Chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to live in freedom. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live by faith and, and do what we do. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to wait. As John Stott says, we wait for the hope, not work for the hope. We wait for the hope of our righteousness. We wait for the hope of righteousness. Today, I am positionally made right with God in Christ. I have positional righteousness. When God looks at me, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And I am practically, by the power of the Holy Spirit, trying to make righteous decisions that are in line with God's word, right? That's the, the growth process. But there is coming a day when what there will never be any conflict between who I am and what I experientially live. There is coming a day when all sin and temptation to sin will be banished and I will be made completely righteous and I won't even be, I won't even think about, you know what, maybe I'll go over here and do this and do something wrong. That, that temptation will be removed. I'll be transformed to such that I'll have no appetite for sin whatsoever and there won't be any sin in my presence. And he's saying that's what we hope for. That's what we wait for. But the word hope in the Bible is not like our word hope. Like, I hope somebody will give me a billion dollars, right? What we mean is that's, that is a wish that we throw out there that we don't think is ever going to actually happen. It means certain reality in the New Testament. It means we're waiting for something that we know we're going to get, but we, don't, we haven't fully experienced it yet. But there's a certainty to the New Testament hope. And we steward our freedom with the understanding of perfect righteousness is coming. The completion is coming. The end is coming. But we have to choose to live in light of these things. Of our certain future. We have to choose to steward our freedom by faith. True Christian faith will always manifest itself in fruit such as love. Notice he says there, he talks about faith working through love. The idea is that it's true, genuine faith. Some people would say, oh, you think it's just about faith, Paul. You're just going to let them live however they want to. And he's, oh, no, no. 
True Christian faith will manifest, it will work through love. You'll begin to love God and you'll begin to love others and it will manifest itself in the fruit of love. And he's going to get even more into that in Galatians 5 later on. Always does. He goes on to say in verse 13, it's not part of our text today, but he says, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, right? He's saying steward it. Steward it. And, why, and the guiding rule is, is love. We'll talk about next week about how we practically do that, but stewardship is about choices. We have to make certain choices. It's, it's choosing to walk in freedom. Choosing to guard our freedom. Choosing to not abuse our freedom. I'm grateful that every day I wake up next to my wife, Mary, right? And we, she is my wife every day. No matter what I feel like or what she feels like, every day we wake up married. Now, whether I live like it is a choice. Somebody can wake up next to their spouse and go out that day and live like they're single. doesn't change the reality. They have to make a choice, right? That day that I'm going to live in light of the fact that I am married to this person, that I'm in a covenant relationship before God with this person. And in the same way, Christians, we steward our, we steward our freedom. We have to make choices. And we have to choose and to live in light of who I am in Christ. Number four. Christian freedom is a race to run without hindrance. And it's not a short race. <laughs> it's a marathon. Look at verse 7. 7 through 12, end of our text. You are running well, he says to them. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and... The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if, brothers, I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In, the case, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Strong language from Paul. PG-13 to say the least. They were running well, but something had happened. They were hindered from obeying the truth. The Christian experience of freedom... The, the Christian life is a race, but we can be hindered in it. Notice the race involves obeying the truth, not simply knowing the truth. Their running meant they were obeying the truth. We will not experience freedom daily if we simply know the truth. We have to obey it, but they were hindered. They were hindered. They were, that word hindered means prevented in their progress. And in a race, a lot of things can hinder you. You can catch a cramp. You can be out of shape like me. Shoe can come untied and stop to have to, you know, you can trip. What? Most of the things, though, we think about are, are internal. Here, something external has begun to hinder them, this false teaching that has come in that's beginning to affect them internally, in their heart. But notice this, he says, was, was not from him who calls you. In other words, it's not from God. It was hindering them by leading them away from the gospel, and God never leads us away from the gospel. God never leads us away from freedom in Christ. He never leads us back into slavery and guilt and shame and condemnation and works righteousness. He never leads us away from the gospel. That's not God. If you're not experiencing gospel freedom today, if you're bound up in legalism today, or you're pursuing some libertine, life, lawless lifestyle today, let me just tell you, that ain't from God. God never leads us away from the experience of freedom in the gospel, which includes stewarding our freedom well. Verse 9 shows us the scary truth that it just takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. You see that phrase in the Bible a few times. And the idea is this. It just takes a little sin. just takes a little false teaching in this case. It takes a little error to move, the, to move you way off course. What seems small can in the end turn into a really big thing. In their case, it's these people trying to hinder them. 
And Paul, man, he's frustrated. He simply wants them to get free from that hindrance to the point that he says he wishes these uns those unsettling them would just emasculate themselves. Is he going for a cheap joke? No. It's, remember this, sarcastic and abiding remark to show the seriousness of the situation. Paul's making the point, these people are bad news and I'm done with them. I'm done with them and you need to be done with them. He says in the story with Sarah, Sarah and Hagar, he's cast them out. Be done with this. Quit fooling with this false teaching. It's leading you astray. Paul is righteously angry. And he ends this section seemingly addressing a rumor. It seems some had accused Paul of that at one time he used to preach that circumcision, you had to be circumcised to be saved and keep the law and things like that, and that he had amended everything <laughs> to be more appeasable to Gentiles. And Paul is saying, if that's the case, why am I being persecuted? Why, why, why everywhere I go do I get persecuted? Why am I being treated like an Isaac if I'm really an Ishmael? He said, that, that doesn't really make sense. And he says, preaching circumcision or preaching the law, preaching that you can justify yourself by something you do, removes the offense of the cross. What does that mean? Well, the cross, the offense of the cross is this. It says, it shouts, you can't do anything. Jesus had to do it all. The message of the cross is it is finished there's nothing for you to bring to the table but your sin. It's offensive to people who want to contribute, who want to earn something, who want to do something to be made right with God. It says, no, 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 no. There's nothing you can do. You know what you did? You sinned. Christ does it all. And receiving the gospel, see, requires humility. It requires us to admit that we can't save ourselves. And living in freedom, the freedom Jesus purchased for you, requires that you run the race with the same humility. What is an offense for those too proud to receive the gospel is the eternal joy of those who humbly receive it. What's an offense to others is freedom for the believer. But we have to walk in humility. The cross should still humble us. Whether we're 85 or 15, whether we've been, whether we've been a Christian for 5 minutes or 50 years, the cross should always humble us and show us we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to steward this freedom we've been given. And we can only do that by the power of the Spirit. Two simple questions in light of all this this morning. First of all, are you experiencing functionally the freedom Christ has given you in Christ if you're a believer? The two primary ways we don't is legalism, which Paul's addressed for much of this book that we've been studying. Living by a set of rules instead of living by faith in Christ. The other way is what would say is a, a libertine approach, a, a loose living approach, a lawless approach that just kind of says, you know what, I'm free so I can do whatever I want to, right? And that is another way that you don't really experience because you're free, as we'll talk next week, you're free to love, you're free to serve, you're free to obey. There is purpose to your freedom and it's not to dive deeper into sin. Secondly, do you actually have this freedom? You can't steward what you don't have. Have you been set free in Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you repented of your sin and, and put your faith in Christ? If you've never done that, we want to always encourage you and invite you to do that. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if I can pray with you about anything, any of that or anything else, I'd love to pray with you. But if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want to invite you to call on Him. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord should be saved. If you'll repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ, even right where you sit, if you'll just call on Him and say, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I can't save myself, God, I believe you sent Jesus. 
He lived the sinless life I can't live and he died the death that I should have died and he rose again and I turned from my sin and I embraced Christ. Put my faith in him. Please save me. Please rescue me. If you'll pray just something like that and genuinely mean it from your heart, God will save you today, I believe. And if you have never done that, I want to invite you to do that as well. Let's pray together.